I'm Ethan. It's good to be here. I'm so glad to see everybody. I wasn't sure how many people would be here, but I'm really impressed, Eagle Church. I really am. There's a lot of you here. Well, like Justin said, uh, my family and I, we've been part of Eagle Church since uh, 2008, and uh, I work as a, an HR specialist and a crisis manager and a musician for Crew, a missionary organization called Crew. And what that means is that when I'm not out helping to lead worship for a conference or out doing some sort of an outreach tour musically, I help our staff unpack problems. And I'm great at this because I've created so many of my own. I have a ton of practice. It comes very naturally to me. I have no business being here. I wish you all knew the backstory of what brought me from my young life to where I am right here, because you would be wildly encouraged that God can truly do anything with anybody. Um, my wife, Karen, is a leader upstairs with NextGen. She is a great musician in her own right. She's by far and away the more interesting of the two of us. My son, Caleb, is 15, and uh, he uh, plays drums and rocks the sweet hair. And Esther, my daughter, is 18 and just finished her first semester at Ball State and is back at home with us, and it's, it's been great having her back. I have it in my notes here to welcome those of you that are joining us online. Welcome. We're glad you're here. If I tell a joke and it seems silent, it's because you just can't hear the laughter. So just know that. Every good story has a moment in it where the tension between what you hope will happen and what you fear will happen becomes unbearable. This is a characteristic of all good stories. It hits this point. I remember it was 1977. The setting was Pullman, Washington, a small college town in eastern Washington where I grew up. I'm sitting in the Cardova Theater, that magnificent palace, the silver screen palace called the Cardova Theater. I, my parents had finally relented and allowed me to go see Star Wars, A New Hope. It had just come out. I'm seven years old at the time. So this is a huge experience. I'm sitting, I weigh about 80 pounds. I'm barely heavy enough to keep the, the spring-loaded, crushed velvet red theater seats open, even from the edge, which is where I spent the entire movie, on the edge of my seat. In the penultimate scene, I know I'm not spoiling this for anyone, the Death Star is maneuvering into position to destroy the rebel base. Meanwhile, a small fleet of uh, rebel ships is approaching to make a last-ditch effort to stop the Death Star from destroying the rebel base. This is one of, it's, it's the moment of the movie. This small contingent of rebel fighter ships, they're this last-ditch effort they're going to try to destroy the floating embodiment of evil known as the Death Star. The rebels, read good guys, were outnumbered, outgunned, and quickly running out of time. Obi-Wan, the mysterious and wise sage, was gone. Han Solo, the freewheeling pilot extraordinaire, he took his money and he ran. Guys, they had, they had an overweight pilot that they named Porkins. They should have just written across his chest, expendable. You know he's not going to make it. You know he's a dead man. <laughs> to make matters worse, Darth Vader, 
the, the, the ultimate evil character, he gets in his own personal TIE fighter and he gets into the fight himself and he's picking off rebel pilots like they're so many tin birds in a shooting gallery. And he zeroes in on Luke Skywalker. I think we have a picture of this moment. He gets in, they're in the trench, the trench is whizzing by, he's closing in on Luke. Luke, in his wisdom, has turned his radio off in favor of the voices in his head. This is good, right? I feel good about this. I feel good about our chances. This is terrible. I just, guys, I was far too young to smoke, so I just shoveled milk duds into my mouth and gulped soda to cope with the anxiety of what was about to happen. I was just bracing myself for what seemed like impending calamity and doom and the disappointment that seemed all but certain. <clears throat> Spoiler alert, the Death Star was destroyed. And when it was, I nearly cried. Not even kidding. I was so excited. It was all I could think about for weeks. It was incredible. Somehow the world was made right. Somehow Luke made that shot. They all got out of there. The Death Star blew up. It was like the first day of summer and Christmas morning packed into one sugar-fueled two-hour event. It was exhausting. Even at seven, I remember wondering, why do people pay for this? And at the same time, I couldn't wait to see it again. I wanted to see it again. It was incredible. The fact is, our hearts love stories like that. They just do. The transcendent joy that we feel when the world is set right, it represents some of the happiest moments you can have in life. They're incredible moments. Our hearts are really tuned to listen for themes like justice and mercy and love and compassion, redemption. And those themes come out in stories like that. They're heightened as the tension builds and when it's resolved, everything ebbs away and it leaves these pillars of these things that we love. God, his heart, broadcasts on those frequencies. Being made by him, it makes sense that we would kind of be tuned in to be listening for them. God also loves to plunge people into calamity uh, in order to bring those themes out. And I bet those of you sitting here, I bet you have some of those stories yourself. It could be that you, like there's a job, maybe that you, it was a long shot and you got it. Maybe you had a relationship and it just seemed irreparable and somehow it got repaired. Or maybe you were facing a financial calamity of some kind and you're stressed. You, it just seems like it's going to be your ruin and it works itself out. If you're in that camp, if that's been your experience, I bet two things are true. I bet you're glad it turned out the way you did and I bet you'd prefer to not relive it because it takes years off your life, right? It does off mine. So in real life, the, the, these kinds of experiences are common to life. And in real life, people react to these situations in one of two ways. It either erodes their faith and their life kind of becomes smaller, or it expands their faith and their life becomes bigger. The deciding factor is something called an internal narrative. What a person's internal narrative is about the events of their life is what determines which way they go as they walk through experiences like this. 
what's an internal narrative? I'm really glad you asked. An internal narrative is the story that we tell ourselves that interprets the events of our lives. Let me repeat that. An internal narrative is the story we tell ourselves that interprets the events of our lives. Guys, we all create these. Everybody does this. We all create a narrative to explain the things that are unexplainable. And let's face it, most of life, a lot of life is unexplainable. We don't totally know why things happen the way that they happen. So we construct stories about it. We create a reality about it. It's normal. It's what everybody does. Here's the problem, and it's put so well in the words of author Tim Elmore. He writes, the story that we tell ourselves about the reality in front of us influences our life every bit as much as the reality itself. This one's also worth repeating. Listen to this. The story we tell ourselves about the reality in front of us influences our life every bit as much as the reality itself. This is why placebos work sometimes, right? So much is about what you believe. When I'm helping somebody in a ministry context unpack something that feels like a calamity, and they all feel like a calamity for the most part to the person walking through it, y'all, that's actually what I'm listening for. Because I've been around for a long time, and I'm really not shocked by that much. I just know what people do, both good and bad. It doesn't surprise me. They're not going to sit here and tell me something that I've never heard, that they did some terrible thing, and I'm shocked. I'm not surprised. What I am listening for is the story that they're telling about it. What's their internal narrative about that? About what God might be doing in that? It's so important. It's typically more important than the struggle itself. And they're always related. Always. There's no shortage of stories in the Bible that have where God's people find themselves in some kind of a calamity. There's, I bet there's a hundred or more of them. The gospel itself is a great example of what seems like an apparent calamity. Today I want to look at one that pulls back the curtain a bit as to why God has such a fondness for impossible situations and the importance of our internal narrative about them. And what I want, what I'm hoping you will walk away with is a life-sustaining and true narrative, or at least the nucleus of a narrative that you can tell yourself as you're facing situations that are difficult and that are uncertain, where you don't know what's going to happen. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at a story about how God raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. The key ideas, we're not going to read the whole narrative. I'm going to pull a few key passages out. I'm going to just say a couple things about each one. The key ideas I want you to really tune into are contrast, contrast, and belief. The two kind of themes we're going to look at. While you're getting there, kind of looking over the story, let me give you some context. Jesus had just had a very contentious altercation with the Pharisees in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of the Dedication, which is actually what we call Hanukkah, what's more typically referred to as Hanukkah. Interesting little synchronicity. That, that, it was happening right about this time of the year, right down to the week. It's this time of year. It's happening right now, at this point in the year. Jesus, as he was wont to do, equated himself with God in front of the Pharisees. They tried to stone him, and then they tried to arrest him, and he escapes. He leaves Jerusalem, 
He crosses the Jordan and he goes to where John the Baptist was at the beginning of the story, where John the Baptist was initially baptizing and teaching people. And that's where he is and people are coming to him and he's, he's ministering to them. While he's there, Martha and Mary approach him. Two friends of his approach him. And they let them know that his other friend, their brother Lazarus, is sick. He learns that while he's there. And we're going to pick the story up right there. First passage we're going to look at starts in verse 4. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6. This is John 11, 4 through 6. But when Jesus heard this, that Lazarus was ill, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. This is an odd response. We know that there was a special relationship between Mary, Martha, and Jesus, and Lazarus too, for that matter. But there's a weird contrast here. We know that he loves them, and on the other hand, he waited two days. That's kind of odd. It could easily have been perceived as a little bit heartless. But Jesus also reveals a much bigger narrative here. He's revealing a narrative that God will be glorified through this. Now, Lazarus had likely died by the time Jesus got the news at the outset. And it seems like he probably knew this. Moving ahead in the story, now he's speaking to the disciples. There's been some confusion. They've had a dialogue and and some teaching. And finally, Jesus cuts to the chase, which is what we're going to do. Verse 14, Jesus said to the disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Okay, another stark contrast. It's terrible. If somebody dies, even somebody that you don't like, when somebody dies, that's bad. And yet Jesus said, I'm glad. I'm glad about this. But there's a bigger purpose. He reveals to his disciples The narrative in this tragedy, and the narrative is about belief. Remember our two themes here, contrast and belief. This would have been very challenging to the disciples. It would have been challenging to anybody. It's hard to consider a good outcome when things seem really bad. Do you know what I mean? You ever been in one of those positions where you feel like There's just no conceivable way this can turn out well. It's hard to conceive of some good thing that might happen. This is why in this gospel, John elsewhere records Jesus as saying, the work of God is to believe in the one that he sent. It's work. Belief is a challenge and it's not reflexive for us. It's not the first thing that we would defer to. It takes a concerted effort to believe when we don't know the outcomes. Let's jump ahead in the narrative. Let's jump to verse 21 through 27. You could preach a series just on this passage. It's a little bit longer. Martha said to Jesus, now Jesus has now, so he's gone back across the Jordan, and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are from Bethany, which is outside of Jerusalem. Jesus goes there, but he stays outside the town. He probably did that to avoid the crowds, because we know there was a lot of crowds. A lot of friends of Mary and Martha had gone to help her, uh, help the sisters mourn. So he stayed outside the town, and it was probably to avoid the crowds. 
Martha comes to him. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, and don't miss this, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The contrast is just completely on the face of it. Belief in the face of an irretrievable tragedy, or what would feel like an irretrievable tragedy. Her brother is dead. He's gone. It's over. The story seems like it's over. And yet Martha... Martha approaches Jesus from a standpoint of belief. I'm not saying Martha was perfect, but she nailed it. This is it. We're coming back to this passage at the end. But she's approaching Jesus ready to believe. Jesus does seem to be inviting her into some kind of a deeper belief, and that's great. But don't miss on the face of it. She's believing. She comes into this conversation in the face of incredible, irretrievable tragedy, ready to believe. And it's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful exchanges in all of Scripture, in my opinion. She believes in the face of her brother being in the grave for four days. Let's move on. This is our last, our last piece. We're moving to verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. At this point, Jesus is now in front of the tomb. Lazarus has been in there for a while. He's in front of the tomb. There's a, there's a crowd, a mixed crowd that's there. It says, Jesus deeply moved again. And I need to hit pause. I want to I wanna crack the door here a little bit. This phrase, deeply moved, um, I was surprised by this. It doesn't mean what you might think that it means. The Greek word, Embryomame or something like that. I'm butchering it. It doesn't matter. You don't speak Greek. <clears throat> it means indignant and angered. Okay, it means there, there's indignation and anger. So, Jesus, indignant and angry again, because he was before, and they used the same word, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. <clears throat> I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! 
the man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Dead four days, walks out of a tomb. Dead four days, walks out of the tomb. Emphasis is still clearly on belief here. God wants them to believe him. Jesus, he's indignant and angry at the unbelief. He's been with them for so long. They've seen so many things. He's fed people. He's done all kinds of incredible healings. And they're just reluctant to believe. And so are we, if we're honest. Because it's hard to believe. Because we live in a world that can break your heart. There's a difference between believing in and believing. When you believe in something, it tends to be a little bit more cerebral. I believe in things when I'm in a history class. It's not that you can't believe in people. You can believe in people. But it's a little bit more cerebral. I believe it existed. It happened. Believing somebody is a whole other thing. I believe my wife I believe my close friends. Believing is based on a knowledge of somebody's character. It's based on knowing that person. You know someone's character and you trust their words, their actions, and their intentions. God clearly wants that crowd, he wanted that crowd in that moment to believe him. And aside from Martha, I'm sure there were some others that believed him, but there were many that didn't, as evidenced by the wailing and the mourning and the, the lack of faith at what God, what God could do, and maybe worse, an assumption about, about him, what it means about him. There's a million alternatives, my friends, for things that you can trust in. There's a lot of them. You can trust in your job. You look to your bank account, you look to a relationship, look to your health, look to your hobbies. There's a, a million things. But God's calling us to believe in something very different. He's calling us to believe Him. To believe in Him. Those other things cannot possibly, they will not give you the guarantees that you're looking for. They will not. In fact, what I can promise you is that at some point, they will break your heart. They will come up short for you. They will not do what you hoped they would do at some point. Not so with God. Here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. Here's what I, my, my prayer for you is that you would build a narrative out of, out of this foundation or something very close to this. God is a complete benevolent authority. He is loving, all-powerful. There's nothing out of his reach, and he cares for you. He cares for you. And he is over all the circumstances. And our internal narrative needs to reflect that. He's bigger than anything you face. 
I'm not trying to invalidate in a room this size. I know there's people sitting out here that are going through some very tough stuff. And my heart is with you. I'm not invalidating the difficulty there. My hope and prayer for you is that you have people in your life that can help you process that. And you have a place where you can communicate your feelings and what's going, what the, the thoughts that you're wrestling with. But I would also want you to know or to be reminded of is that God is over everything. There is nothing outside of his reach. Not a thing. Not even four days in a tomb. Nothing. He's over it all. And he cares for you. Your life matters to him. His glory and your well-being are wrapped up together. He's made a commitment to you. You can take that to the bank. A year ago exactly, I was in Hawaii. My mother-in-law very generously flew our family and my sister's, uh, or my, my wife's sister's family to Hawaii for vacation. We were there for like 10 days. It was unbelievable. Go ahead and leave this picture up. In the early morning, I would get up before the sun came up and I'd go for a long run. It's like 65 degrees out, just like you're running through heaven. It's beautiful. I know running doesn't sound like it's a lot of fun to a lot of you, but it is to me, so this is my sweet spot. I'd get home, make the coffee, get a little breakfast, and I would sit on this deck right from this spot and look out over, over the bay, have my quiet time, think about life. It really was an incredible trip. But what I need to tell you, what you probably don't know, is that behind that, I was really stressed because the financial part of our ministry was in terrible, it was in a terrible place. Our ministry account was just nosediving. I really didn't know if I was going to be able to be, to stay in my job for very much longer. I had no idea what the future held. And honestly, speaking completely candidly, if someone had thrown me a lifeline that could even sort of provide for my family, I would have taken it. That's where I, that's the emotions I was fighting. I just wanted out. I don't like this. I don't, when I think of the support that I need to raise, that number is so high. I just, I can't face it. So sitting there, it just seems so incongruent. I'm sitting here in this extravagant home, in vacation, experiencing a vacation that, frankly, a lot, not very many people can experience. I didn't pay for it. But there God had me, and it just seems so incongruent. I didn't know what to do with it. So I promise you that my internal narrative became very, very important. What I was deferring to, kind of where I wanted to go in my flesh was, this is never going to work. I need to escape. I just need to get out of this. I need to just bail on this whole thing and get a job at Amazon or somewhere and call it a day. It was great, great run while I was there. But I just knew in my soul that God wasn't really leaving that as an option. And there was a lot of reasons. It doesn't really matter. For the price of a cup of coffee, I'd be happy to elaborate. But it was very obvious that God was saying, no, I, I want you right here. But God was very gently looking at me and saying, yeah, it looks like, looks like you have some support to raise. How are you going to start into that? 
and I was angry. If you know me, you know that anger is a central emotion that I, that I deal with. It's probably the truest thing about me is, uh, is this internal anger that I have. Again, it doesn't matter why. I'd tell you over a cup of coffee if you're interested. But I don't want to do this, Lord. I don't want to believe because you might break my heart. I might try and I might fail and flop. I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't want to do this anymore. I want to run away and escape. That's what was operating inside me. But I didn't. I, um, I chose a different path this time. And I, I basically I said to God, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home. And I made a plan, and it was totally insufficient. It didn't, even if the plan worked, it would barely you know, make a dent in what I was looking at. But I made a plan, and I started working it. And I, I just decided, I learned this from my wife. I just decided, I'm just going to worry about one day at a time. I'm going to let God put in front of me what he wants to put in front of me. And I'll just do that one day at a time, and we'll just see where it goes. And if it flops, it flops. It's out of my hands. I'll do my very best. And I adopted a posture of belief. If you had told me then that I'd be standing here today in my present reality, it just would have been... I would have been ecstatic. I would have gone all Pentecostal and like waving a flag and dancing around. It's just I don't know that I could have believed it. We're not out of the woods. I mean, we're still chipping away at that. But guys, in this year, in the year since then, I completed a counseling certificate that was very expensive. I completed a counseling certificate I finished my seminary training through crew. I went to a conference, an expensive conference that we all go to. It's our biannual conference. God provided for all one thing at a time. It was never enough to project very far in the future, but one thing at a time, he did it. And now I'm just looking back this year. I'm looking back on 2019 at one thing after another, one barrier after another that he overcame one step at a time. Many of you sitting in the seats today, including Eagle Church as a whole, have played a significant role in helping us to stay in ministry. And I'm deeply grateful. I'm glad I have a chance to stand in front of you and, and tell you how thankful we are. It means so much. So thank you. I have one tip. And two exercises for you, and then we're done. Here's the tip. You don't know what's going to happen. And it's arrogant for us to think that we do. When things look bad, it's fine to acknowledge that they look bad, but you don't know what God might do. He's capable of anything. He could do anything. And he cares for you. What would a benevolent, all-powerful God who cares for you be capable of? He's capable of anything. One of the best things that you can do to help yourself to believe is to acknowledge that. I don't know what's going to happen. And that might not be bad. Something good might happen. This is something that we practice. You can do this. Anybody sitting in this room can do this. It's, it's not easy but it's not complicated. 
It's like a muscle that you flex. When you're facing situations like that, God might, he might do something really incredible here. This could be a setup for seeing God dramatically destroy the Death Star in my life or whatever that thing is. So tip, don't assume you know what's going to happen. I have two quiet time exercises for you. Here's the first one. Reflect back on your 2019. What were the key struggles that you experienced? You might have lost a job. You might have had a huge health setback or any kind of health setback. You might have a relationship that was fractured. How did God meet you in those? It could be that you simply survived. Don't look past that because if your rear end is in a blue seat, you're living to fight another day. And that's good news. You're still here. How did God resolve or help you to survive the challenges of 2019? In your next quiet time, spend a few minutes and just make a list. What were some of the biggest things that happened in 2019 that had to be overcome? And how did God meet me in those? Folks, listen, your biggest, the biggest threat to your faith is your memory. I bet God, I bet God has met you in dramatic fashion 20 times in 2019. And I bet if you were put on the spot, if you're like me, you'd be hard-pressed to name three or four. Your memory is the, is the thing you have to overcome. So that's why this exercise is so good. Sit down in your quiet time. Make that list. Pull out your day planner or whatever you use to plan that might help jog your memory and make a list of the biggest challenges that you met and went through and, and answer the question, how did God help me through those? Okay. Here's the second one. At a subsequent quiet time, depending how much time you have for your quiet time, do the same thing and think about 2020. These are in this order for a reason. You look back to gain courage for the future, right? You look at what God has done, because no one can take that away, in order to gain a good perspective on 2020. How would it change your internal narrative about 2020 and the challenges, setbacks, and the uncertainty that you are going to face if you viewed them in light of how he met you in 2019. Here's an excellent question. I use this question a lot. I use it for me. I use it for people I'm working with. If I knew that I couldn't lose, what would I want to do? Or what would I dare to hope for? If I knew I couldn't lose... What would I want to do? Or what would I dare to hope for? This question gets down to desires. And those desires matter. I can't go on and on about this. I'm probably over time as it is. But I will say, desires get a bad rap. They really do. Folks, if you're in Christ, the majority of the things that you really desire are likely good. Possibly all of them. I'm not saying we always take them to the right place, right? That's where we get into trouble. But the things that you truly want, those are not bad. They're important. That informs the direction that you go. It can give you incredible insight to what God's doing in your life and the direction, the story that he is writing in your life. So don't look past them. Okay, you're reflecting back on 2019. Make that list. Consider how God met you in it. Then you're looking ahead to 2020, and you're thinking, what, what could 2020 look like if my internal narrative was positive? 
I think we're, I think we're moving to a song after this. In true artist fashion, I didn't look. So is that right, Justin? Are we doing a song? All right, I think that was a thumbs up. Guys, you can come on up. My prayer for you, my prayer for you is that your internal narrative would start from the place of an all-powerful, benevolent God who cares for you. A God whom no circumstance is beyond him. A God who went to the mat, gave everything that he had, came down, we just celebrated this, he came down, put himself in the middle of the yuck with us. Who does that? We barely do that for each other. And God did that for us. And if he's willing to do that, you have to ask yourself, what could he do with my circumstance? What would a God like that do with my circumstance? So glad you're here this morning. Um, Let me pray for us. Jesus, remind us daily of your love for us. We confess how quickly we forget. Lord, I confess I forget who you are. Would you remind us daily of your your intense and abiding love for us and your ability to handle anything that we face? Lord, that you are the God that writes a positive story out of literally everything. There is nothing beyond you. No wasted effort. No wasted tears. Lord, remind us of that, and I pray that as we enter into 2020, it would be with that as the engine of our internal narrative, that that's what would drive our narratives about the events of our lives. Help us to walk near to you. Help us to be faithful and quick to share the good news of your coming and of your being with us and of your sacrificial death. God, would you enlarge this family that way? And I thank you for the the congregation, this community here at Eagle. Lord, would you bless them with a restful and beautiful rest of the day. And we just lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen.